Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to the podcast Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. Hopefully we uh, meet both needs for you. We're going to try to this week as well. Uh, a movie that definitely deserves some reviewing. And two movies that I think really need some reappraising. I think this is a good, should be a good episode. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, friend? I've had a strange weekend, but I'm I'm hanging in there. I'm pretty tired. But yeah, we're we're gonna get into this. Yeah, I just got back from uh, my friend Brent, his bachelor party. Him and uh, my high school friends came into New York City, and we uh, we did, got into a few things. And uh, yeah, sounds to me like it's Ethos Corner time. Thanks, thanks for doing this. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Little rider, Donnie. Donnie, little rider. So what did you get up to on friend and former guest of the pod, Brent Rivers' bachelor party night? I went to Madison Square Garden to take part in night two of the 13-night stand. <laughs> uh called The Baker's Dozen, put on by the one and only Fish. Right. We walked over to Madison Square Garden, and immediately people, like the, just like the vibe changed. Like the people like going in, like crossing 7th (laughs) Avenue to go into the Madison Square Garden was like totally like bizarre and like, Definitely, like, their hygiene standards, like, weren't on my level, per se, but I'm pretty snobby Mm -hmm. when it comes to that stuff. But they were also, like, very friendly and, like, everything's just, like, going to be great, guys. I was standing in line to, like, get my ticket, like, uh, or go up to the escalators to, like, get up to our seats. And um, this woman just, like, makes eye contact with me and she goes, tonight is the 20th anniversary of my first fish show. And I go, it's my first one. And she, like, looks at me like a child or something would look at, you know, something helpless or, like, someone would look at a child and just, like, embraces me and goes, have a great show. It's going to change your life. (laughs) And? But it was also, like, a lot of people in an indoor space. It's, like, what, 25,000 people in an indoor space. And so I proceeded to just have, like, a total like panic attack. Yeah, you don't do well with uh, concerts. No, I don't love concerts. I don't no. love cra- crowds of people, except at like outdoor venues. I uh-huh. like like baseball games. Sure. Um, but this, yeah, I had a total anxiety attack, and you know everyone's like talking and like you know talking about fish stuff and like I'm kind of in my own world anyway, like just trying not to vomit on myself, <laughs> and the lights go down. Trey and company come out and start this acapella version of Strawberry Fields (laughs) and then just go into 
like a 90 minute set. And then they took a 30 minute break and then they played another 90 minute set. That is what I hear they do. That's the fish way. And somewhere in the middle of the first set, like it began to like hit me. I, I'm not sure what it is. I think it's because like their songs are so like they're long and sort of repetitive in an artful way, I would say. But there's something if you just like really like focus on it, you go into a sort of trance mm-hmm. where like the just like the funkiness of the music and just like the, you know, the beat or something just like takes you over. So you like lose control of your body and just start, you know, bopping around in your seat around all these other people who are doing exactly the same thing. And like, I found personally that my mind became like sort of quiet. Like it wasn't as though I was even listening to music anymore. Mm. And I was like in this space where like, I could finally hear myself think, you know, like, and my, and coming off of like the tail end of a pretty gnarly anxiety attack, it was like, it was like a religious experience. Sure. You know, baptized in jam band music. And then we were so euphoric that when the show ended, it was like a nightmare to get out of there because people like were like rushing for the doors after it was over and they were met with like just a downpour, just a summer shower, like of the highest order. And then, but like we got out into the street and like most people are just like, oh, like, well, you know, like, let's wait till it dies down or like, let's, let's run for a cab or something. And me and my friends were like, no, you know, New York weather has, has thrown us the best shot they have. And we stood out there in the rain, walking back to this penthouse for over a mile, mind you, looking to the heavens saying, is this the best you can muster? (laughs) Okay, let's run. So speaking of sensory overload and young men facing down the elements, let's talk about these movies, shall we? Absolutely. We, because of Chris Nolan's Dunkirk, which came out this past weekend, we're in the genre of military rescue movies. Horrible military failures and the ensuing rescue movies. I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, and they're, what an interesting pair they, or trio they are because how uh, the wand is brand new and the two of them are both from 2001 after 9-11. Right. It's, it'll make for an interesting conversation, but we are going to start with Dunkirk. Oh, we have to. This is a World War II film from the director of the Dark Knight trilogy and Inception and uh, The Prestige and Interstellar. And if you don't... I mean, this episode's going to be us filling you in on some historical background. Uh, this is 1940. This is uh, the initial German blitz across France, traps uh, 400,000 Allied troops on the beach, backed up against the English Channel. The beach is Dunkirk. Um, That it is. And instead of rolling in and destroying them, this is still like open to historical debate, the Germans kind of lay off and then over like a series of days like just kind of like dive bomb the beach over and over again. And the, the British military um, cannot or is unwilling to rescue them because the channel is so full of U-boats. So they're sending out like one destroyer at a time to pick up hundreds of thousands of people. They, can, they can't get to the actual beach because it's too shallow. So it's just an incredible, like tragic 
conundrum. And then the English civilians, you know, shows up for these guys. This is the, no spoilers, but like this is, this is history. The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. It's a pretty straightforward war movie, save one very big Nolanism, which is that he, the movie is told in, in three timelines happening at different speeds that all line up at the end. The beach plotline is happening over the course of a week, the sea plotline is happening over the course of a day, and the plane pot line is happening over the course of an hour and that i believe will be our sticking point on this movie yeah for those of you who uh, aren't watching this so if you're not chance Everyone. or me um you didn't see me making that uh, a masturbative gesture in chance's direction as he like so lovingly described this uh gimmicky narr- narrative trick i think gimmicky is such an insult yeah, it's, that's the way it was intended. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to describe or should we just dive in? What's interesting about uh, Nolan is that he's so good at making like Chance and Noah genre movies mm-hmm. and pretending that they're not Noah and Chance genre movies. How do you, you mean Because this is a, you know, saving some guys in a military situation movie if you boiled it down, if you un- right. Fool the knot that is this, like, untie the knot that is this movie. Mm -hmm. What the straight, like, piece of string you will get is a movie not dissimilar from Behind Enemy Lines and uh, Black Hawk Down. The other two movies we'll be discussing tonight. I don't disagree with that, but I think the thing you're talking about is what makes him exciting. I think that's why people... You know, is that he's why, a like, not the, a good writer? That the no, that the film world will run out and see Christopher Nolan. Like, what what's it going to be like when Christopher Nolan directs a Clint Eastwood movie? Like, that's what this is. Like that. Wh- like thinking about Dunkirk, it's just like, why does he want to make a Clint Eastwood movie? Well, he doesn't. He wants to take a real life story with, I think, some like pretty novel empathy and like hope for him, and make it in a Christopher Nolan way. Right. But the Christopher Nolan way is telling the narrative like strands as obscurely as possible while still holding on to you in a narrative way, which makes you mistake his his like showmanship for actual, I think, writing talent. What I think is so frustrating for me about this movie is that there is the best war movie ever made in this movie. Mm-hmm. The way in which Christopher Nolan creates the setting of Dunkirk like is unbelievable. This like hell, this purgatory that these men are stuck on or like compelled to go to was so like deeply meaningful, you know, that I think I won't feel so bad like when it probably wins Oscars. The direction for me to make a sensorially terrifying war movie without any gore right is an incredible directing achievement right 
That is, I think, again, another brilliant thing in this is that I was on the edge of my seat, like uncomfortably just like watching this movie like between my fingers almost, and there's no gore. It was funny. Walking out of this movie, a biplane went over as I was walking out back out to the train and just like, mm, I was like, what the fuck is that? Right. And, yeah. and that sound of a Stuka dive bomber is so much more taxing than like somebody getting their hand blown off. Right. Someone oh, looking it, around for his thumb. Yes. Um, and what I really like about this movie too, I think my big takeaway is that like speaking to its World War II-ness is that you have these people in this specific war setting having to like interact with transport in a way that's just not part of our iconography for any other war, right? I mean, Vietnam, right. World War One, Civil War, it's the, the hellscape of the battlefield. And in this, it's like, oh, the thing that could take you home and be your salvation could also be your like water coffin. And there's nothing scarier than that. Right, that's the thing. Like people don't, they, they want to get off of it, but like their options are so bleak. There's this feeling of like convergence that happens. Like mm-hmm. every one of these like timelines, every, you know, the other thing I like about this movie is that nobody gives a speech where they're like 400,000 men, Dunkirk, like if we're defeated, that could be the end of World War II. <laughs> that doesn't happen. It's just like a bunch of people facing their own horrible little predicament that all right. come together at the end. And it's this like miracle convergence that is Dunkirk. And then I feel like is mirrored in the construction of the movie when it all like hits and builds to me that is like that's the moment that i didn't even think was coming that's the great thing about or the tricky thing but when it's done well it's great um about period anything is that people going through these periods do not realize that they are in them. Right. Like, nobody knows they're in World War II at the time, really. They're not going to call it that. You know, they're not going to know that, like, you know, well, we'll get them when the Americans join after Pearl Harbor, which hasn't happened yet. It's funny. It reminds me of a movie we thought about doing when we had a different category, Pearl Harbor. That's sort of like... The imagery will remind you of it, like people swimming for their lives and like the horror of being underwater as there's like gunfire. But Nolan will never show you the barrel of a gun. He will never show you a bomb falling. I was really struck by the way that when he shoots, when he photographs the torpedo going into the side of the boat, it's just like a wake from the world's tiniest jet ski. It doesn't seem dangerous. It doesn't, but it's horrifying. Let's talk about the characters, because they are interestingly blank considering the actors, right? Right. It's uh, Kenneth Branagh is uh, like the commander trying to get these kids home, standing on the jetty being like, oh, I hope these ships get here soon. Mark Rylance is a, a English civilian who just brings his, his I don't God, I don't know, 15-foot boat across the channel, hoping to play ferry. Uh, Tom Hardy is a pilot who spends most of the uh, movie with his face covered. Um, and, uh, Harry Styles, of course, shows up as like a, a private, private nobody. Um, Owen Killian Murphy's in it. Some very familiar Nolan faces. And but Michael like, Caine is the, uh, the radio operator. Is that true? Yeah. With, uh, uh, with the one with the Tom Hardy in the, in that timeline. Oh, really? Yeah. We never see him though. No, he just, he, and it's like four lines. Oh, this movie okay. doesn't have much dialogue. No, it doesn't. 
And it doesn't have much use for star power or personality either. And it's not trying to sell you like anybody is the Tom Hanks, which I think is really nice. Nor is it trying to make Harry Styles seem like the next Leo DiCaprio. You know, and it's it's a movie about like what people stuck in this purgatory will do when they're cornered. Yeah. There's no pictures of anyone's kids. <laughs> this is true. Nobody calls their wife. Not yeah. that they could. Nobody writes their like spouse a letter. Right. You know, nobody looks at a locket. Yeah. You know, it's God, it's I love that it doesn't do those things so much. It doesn't do those things. And it's, on one hand, it's a movie about like the, the difference between like stimulus and boredom. Mm. But you get the sense that it's created, the war has created these weird biorhythms in these soldiers. Like right. when a, a dive bomber goes over and they're all like, oh, and then they all kind of just like, stand back up in like a weird way that's just they're like some organism that's just been beaten senseless yeah well what you can piece together from the somewhat minimal dialogue is a line where mark rylance says he's changed from the war and i don't know if he'll ever be the same Mm -hmm. when they're talking about like why killian murphy's acting so strange he's shell-shocked he's changed and i don't even i don't know if he'll ever go back to the way he was and that is sort of what the movie is about, is you're looking at this sort of the changed faces of these, like, because that's like the, the brilliance of casting a Harry Styles is like, I'm sure he was Harry Styles, like when he was back, like living his young man's life. Mm-hmm. But like war has like changed him into being like a rat in a cage. Yeah. You know, willing to chew off his own leg if it gets caught. Apparently Dunkirk spirit is a thing that, the Brits just, they just know it's like, uh, yeah, retreating gracefully. World- yeah. It's part of their world. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's, uh, you know, it's baked into their like national identity. If you have a certain historical consciousness and Americans, we just don't, we don't have that. We showed up four years later and we're like, Oh yeah, there was certainly a cost to us fucking kicking ass on that beach. Wasn't there? Um, where these guys were like trying to get home four years earlier. Right. Well, what's interesting about this movie compared to, and I think that's a good point to to back this up on, um, how it compares to Saving Private Ryan in that way of, he, like, the Normandy is, like, generally remembered as something that was horrible, like, but necessary and victorious. Yes. So you're going in with, like, here's, like, the kind of sad stories about the guy who the guys who led to an ultimately victorious thing. Mm-hmm. And this movie kind of flips it, where it's like, here are, like, the acts of bravery from what was ultimately, it's like the silver lining, really. Yeah. You know, like, the, Saving Private Ryan is like, did the means justify the ends? Where this one is like, but look at the silver lining of just, like, our spirit. And I think that that was very touching to me. To just, to, wa- to watch a war movie that is fundamentally about a retreat, honestly, where there's no real need to analyze, like, the meaning of war, whatever the war, like, the heart of darkness of war is. Because, like, we already know what Nazis are. We already know how this turned out. Like right. you're just in the face of a terrifying predicament and you just live. And that's the whole game. And that's very touching, at least to me, Yeah. especially compared to something like Black Hawk Down. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. But no, I think this, it does, it does render a sort of brilliance, but in a way that I almost feel is a little too slight. Didn't you feel like, 
like if you watch Saving Private Ryan, like you know like how these guys take their coffee. Like you know these people and you've been through something with them. With this, I felt like as much as he makes uh, Christopher Nolan makes movies about characters, he also is not concerned with making the kinds of characters that like maybe we expect from more popular mainstream films. Mm-hmm. And for me, like I think that's part of my expectations as a film goer is that like I will sort of root for somebody. You know, and I think that that could have been solved. And I, I forget who's, I think I read this in the New York Times review. Uh, Manola Dargis pointed out that, like, if they had framed the movie on Kenneth Branagh sort of watching this all unfold, because he's, like, you know, sort of at the pe- the, the end of this mole, this yeah. sort of pier that they're going off of. Mm-hmm. Um, if you If you make him sort of the protagonist as, like, a child sort of, like, playing with soldiers... Like, maybe you'd have more of, like, an emotional connection. Like, I feel like my connection to this is totally intellectual Mm. and not terribly emotional. Yeah, I think the emotional... I I agree, that is the most ready criticism of the film, is that it doesn't offer any of the, like, things they carried kind of background. Um, That's the... Yes, I think that's its weakest point for sure. But it, it, it functions in a way that the um, the emotional onslaught of the end is a surprise. Like, right. I didn't feel it coming. And so when the Hans Zimmer score that has just been like, all of a sudden becomes like something melodic, it's just like, oh, my God. And the Winston yeah. Churchill speech, I have to say, I was very emotional with that when the Winston Churchill speech was playing. And you, you have these young, you have these boys, these boys who are almost like, who are like 10 years younger than us who think they've like let down their nation and yeah, absolutely. They have yeah. They're, it does something. <laughs> it does achieve like what it sets out to do. But I think by like, as we sort of turn towards a rating here, which I feel is due. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed, or Jaws, or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say... Love that. Bad bad is easy too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. While I was, like, moved intellectually and thought it was, like, one of the best made films that I've maybe ever seen, which I think every time I see a Christopher Nolan movie, mm-hmm. I don't know that I was like moved emotionally 
in the way that I want to from a movie that like makes me feel good on the entertainment enjoyment level. Yeah. So I think fundamentally this movie for me is a good bad. I'm not going to get mad at you for that because I think as it stands, I kind of want to go back and see if the very straight faced like setup that suddenly builds is worth it. Is there, is there rewatch value in that sudden build once again? So I'm not upset at you for that rating. I think it's, I, I, for me, it's a pretty clear, heartfelt, good, good. Um, but but I also don't think this movie is without its flaws. I don't think it's the best Christopher Nolan movie. There's a lot of that going around. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel that way. What do you um, think the best Nolan movie is? I think it might be Inception. I think the Inception is definitely more user-friendly than Dunkirk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's definitely what leads to my like good-bad rating. Sure. I'm with you. Um. But yeah, I'm mean, glad I saw it. I've been thinking about it all weekend. I thought about it a lot when I was like um, in my fugue state at the fish show. <laughs> I was just going to ask. Oh, man. So speaking of uh, the Nolan filmography, we should go now to our, our, our guest for this week. Uh, friend of the show, one-time guest, and the biggest Nolan head I know. It's Joe Kozel with the Kozel proposal. He's coming back round. He's coming back round! Well, joining us on the show today, it's a former guest of this show. He is the maker and bringer of proposals. He was just in France and left for Britain and came back here. And he's also a member of the terrific Lincoln-based rock band Blay, which I implore you to check out. It's Joe Kozel. Hey, buddy. Oh, hey, dude. That's very nice. I'm not an expert of Britain, France, or movies, but I'm here. But maybe like ambient rock of the present day. I know a lot about delay pedals, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's not delay any further. Um, what I wanted to talk about is, well, just for some quick background, you are the biggest Nolan fan I know. The first time we ever sort of like had a college class together and like really got to talk and it was about Christopher Nolan. That's what it was. But anyone who had seen Memento, at, I think like our ju- junior year of college was like a pretty cool person. So that was like a mark of like, Maybe we should keep chatting about this. But what oh, yeah. What did you love Memento, about him so much? It had to do with probably like technical prowess, right? Like sure. particularly like the one that got me the most was The Prestige, mm-hmm. which was like the first movie that I saw knowing that Christopher Nolan was a person. Okay. You so know, like I saw Batman, Batman Begins. Yeah, I saw Batman Begins because I was 13 and like that's what you do yeah. or whatever. But uh, it was the first one that made me say, like, hey, I need to know more about this Christopher Nolan fella. Because you felt like he was breaking rules? You did, you, maybe you didn't know he could break? Yeah, it was, it was things that... I'm not saying that he was the first to do any of the things that were done in The Prestige, but he was the first to show me those things. Yeah, sure. In that movie. And that, like, really got me. So I, like, dug in hard, and I was like, this is my guy. And then... I, that lasted till, you know, maybe like 2012. And now I have like a healthy respect with like a healthy amount of skepticism for what he's done. Much probably like anything since. that you just like adore at 18. Like when yeah, you're in exactly. your 20s, you just sort of like, you also kind of become an expert in its deficiencies too. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, tr- we yeah, I try to, be, I try to be honest with the guy. I, I want the Christopher Nolan 
that we deserve, not the one we need. <laughs> um, so we had also texted uh, through like the first half of this year, kind of like about how maybe we thought Dunkirk was going to be a misuse of his talents. Is that fair? The marketing is horrible. How so? The trailers for this movie made it look like a parody of a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> Self-seriousness, overdramatics. Uh, too British. Some, too British. <laughs> some, act, some actors that don't know when to reel it in a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and especially Kenneth Branagh, because no one knows how to not reel it in like Kenneth Branagh. That's true. That's very true. Um, and so then, of course, like with that in your head, what did you feel when you, when you went in? How did it defy your expectations? This movie is an, is a full hour shorter than Interstellar. (laughs) Oh man. A full hour. And so that immediately got me like excited from the start. Cause sure. I'm like, whole, cause I, I, I think I hold Christopher Nolan to different standards because he's proven that he, he knows how to make a movie. For sure. Good one. He's, he's got the skills. So I'm not looking for him to say like, yeah, I, I'm a proficient filmmaker. I'm looking for him to like do something big with that in, big in this do something significant in in this case more significance was packed into like a smaller time yeah yeah and so i was like excited i was like okay christopher nolan decided to trim the fat on whatever this is and now i'm excited to go see it so i was like in a very good mind state going in okay state of state of mind going into it (laughs) christopher nolan probably would call it a mind state though a mind state, yeah, but it has like other levels. Right, yeah. Like you have a mind county and like a mind city. I can't make you think and... about an elephant in your mind state without you knowing that I told you to. Yeah, exactly. Um, you you put it there. Yeah. What um so this is an inelegant way of asking the question, but you're a big fan? What'd you think? Were you happy? I thought this movie was very good. Me too. The the one thing that like struck me, the sensation that struck me the most was how mechanical Tom Hardy's plane sounded. Yes. Like he wasn't just a, f- a fighter pilot, but you could tell like, oh man, what kind of crazy guts did it take to get in a plane in 1940? Mm-hmm. Like that thing should not have worked. Yeah, you're, it's and, a real sort of like subversion of the kind of like... The daring fighter pilot, like, zipping around in the X-Wing. Because he's got to cajole the bejesus out of that hunk of metal. Yeah. It doesn't even seem like he's a better pilot than the people he shoots down. It just seems like maybe he got the drop on them. Every little thing, right? Like, the the fact that I left getting the feeling that, like, oh, shit, maybe you can jump off a sinking boat. And that boat can still sink faster than you can swim away from it. Ugh. And it will still pull you under. Yeah. Like, those things... Uh, yeah, so it it was perfect in a technical sense, I think. Like, all funneling and, toward the the Kozel proposal. Yeah. So can I can I digress to the Prestige a little bit? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the Prestige is important to me not because it was just the first movie, but it's because I I will fight tooth and nail to argue that in addition to being a good movie, the Prestige is a great movie about making movies. Sure. Yeah. That. Even though they're magicians, like that, like 
you know, movie magic is what it's called, right? And yeah. it's all about, and that's a whole thing about sacrifice and what are you going to, how dedicated are you going to be to tradition or diving into technology and like, you know, like, are you going to like sell your control away to some like new age technology and see what happens from that? Like, I think that in that movie you find a lot about What's their relationship to the audience? Are you supposed yeah. to just uh, placate them or like astound them in a in like yeah? A... Are you supposed yeah? Are you supposed to change their lives or are you supposed to just make them happy for yeah, a little yeah. bit? Are you supposed to, you know, are you supposed to make money for the guy who owns the theater or are you supposed to leave feeling like you're better than everyone else? <laughs> That's true. There's a lot um, of uh, questions for filmmakers there. Christian Bale says to Hugh Jackman very early on. Uh, you you want to be a great magician? You got to be willing to get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And then later, he's when he's astounded by him. He says, "Well, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're not afraid to get your hands dirty anymore." Right. And so, despite all my praise for this movie, <laughs> um, Christopher Nolan's af- is afraid to get his hands dirty. Okay. He won't. Uh, I think that there's a number of things that he. Uh, he won't touch. This is a war movie, right? Yeah. And it's a great war movie. But World War Two is a really easy war to tell. Oh, for because sure. Because you, you don't have any moral ambiguity right. in what it is, right? Like the not like the idea of a Nazi is our is a is a synonym for evil in today's in like our modern language. Mm-hmm. So like you don't have to question who you're rooting for. It's not just this movie. It's, uh, you know, it was Interstellar where uh, they ma- he makes a movie about having to leave the planet Earth, but we're not going to touch any questions about what destroyed our planet mm-hmm. in the first place. Because he doesn't want to piss off his audience. He, doesn't, he just knows that the Earth is being destroyed, and so we got to get out of here, and this is how we deal with my movie. And... It goes back, I think, even to The Dark Knight Rises, where the city's being taken over by evil, so we're going to unleash a literal army, a complete militarized police force under the command of a single human being, Mm -hmm. and we're not going to question it for a second because he's right and he's just going to save the day. It's true. My proposal of the day is that Christopher Nolan's afraid to get his hands dirty anymore. I like it. So are you saying then that... You're saying that he's more uh, Great Danton than Alfred Borden at this point. Yeah, he's more like Great Danton with the double. Like, he's got Hugh Jackman in some mild prosthetics, so it's believable that it's another person who's just a drunk <laughs> yeah. playing all of his tricks for him. I don't think that's how he's always been. I think he's been a little more daring, pr- like, through all the way through Inception. Yeah. And I'm going to say that Inception was the year that he that that movie didn't win Best Picture. Right. And that was a great year of movies. But you know what won that year? In what, 11? Yeah. Is it Hurt Locker? Oh, man, no. It is The King's Speech. (laughs) A totally bland movie that no one's seen twice, but no one can criticize. Right, about British uh, honor and uh, overcoming an obstacle. Yeah. So... In this um, same era. Yeah, so 
I think he's Oscar chasing like DiCaprio did, where DiCaprio's strategy was punish my body until someone finally gives me a trophy. (laughs) And Christopher Nolan's strategy is like make great movies that like won't give anyone the tiniest bit of heartburn after it goes down. That's a very that's a really good point. I mean, and this makes me think for the first time. Like, I also really like this movie. I don't think it's his best movie. I definitely don't think it's his most ambitious. But you raising this point makes me think like. This was a really safe choice. He was never going to like mess this up beyond belief. He's an incredible technical filmmaker yeah. telling a war story. This was always going to be like a like a B or B plus movie. Yeah. What is the fu- not that we know or we read the trade magazines, but like what's the future for him? Do we see do we envision anything any time where his hands hit the hit the dirt? I mean, I just hope someone gives him an gives him the like Oscar for director or picture or whatever one he wants so that's not a thing he's chasing like he's he started out as a noir filmmaker you know like that's what memento is that's what insomnia is that's what following is and i you, you could probably and and i think there's a lot of that scene in the prestige i think a pre, the prestige is a w- weird movie oh yeah it's, hard it's to, definitely noir it's hard it's to, people crawling around alleys in an underworld yeah so, um, so yeah, I think that's kind of his wheelhouse, and I would like to see him go back there instead of dealing with epics. Well, buddy, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. This is a f- this is a fun thing I get to do sometimes. All right, let's do it again. Adios. Where are we going? Dunkirk. I'm not going back. There's no hiding from this sun. What do you want to do next? Behind enemy lines or Black Hawk Down? You want to lighten it up a little with Behind Enemy yeah, Lines? I think we should. <laughs> How many times have you seen this movie? I feel like I had a moment with it when I was a kid. Maybe I saw it like three times as a kid. And when was this? 2001? Correct. I don't think I've seen it in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. So 01, I... uh, directed by John Moore who has like has a pretty bad resume but like it should tell you what you need to know about the action in this movie. A good right. day to die hard, Max Payne, The Omen, Flight of the Phoenix. Oh yeah. So um let me ask you this though. Yeah. Having seen this movie two or three times 15 years ago, did you still remember like every beat of the plot? <laughs> Absolutely. I remember it exactly. I was like when's going to be like the mine scene where it's like coming from either side? Yeah. Like, when is he going to realize that the uh, files from the camera are in the ejector seat and have to, like, go back to the thing with, like, the the angel statue? There's something strangely memorable about it. Probably because it's Owen Wilson. Why do people believe that Owen Wilson, like, has a side of him that he would even be remotely the right person for this role? Like, it's this movie, and what's that movie where he, like, he's running on rooftops with Lake Bell, like, trying to get their kids to safety, like, when some third world country, like, turns on them? Wow, I don't know. But this is around Anaconda time, right? He was sort of testing out, you know, to see if his broad shoulders could carry, like, an action comedy. This is not an action comedy. It is an action movie with some Owen Wilson asides. The movie I was thinking of was 2005's No Escape. Oh. Wow. Or sorry, 2015's No Escape. Okay, okay. I mean, this movie came out the same fucking year as the Royal Tenenbaums. Like, that's... Yeah, it's Eli Cash and Royal in the U.S. Navy. 
which one do you think they like made first? That's a great question. And then which one of them do you think they like just goofed off on because of their formative experience? Like, cause that's the thing. Gene Hackman and Owen Wilson are in one scene really together mm-hmm. or maybe two, like at the end, but most of it, it's like him reacting to probably some production assistant, like reading the lines at him as he like slides down like a, a dam. We pretend we're in the middle of the fight. We're not fighting. We're watching. You'd be glad you're not in a fight, Lieutenant. You wouldn't last long. In a world where outlaw armies wage a secret war, the Navy's most powerful ship is not free to strike back. You understand how important it is that your pilots don't stray from the agreed fly zone. And no one felt it more than Lieutenant Chris Burnett. Don't you forget what you're doing. Are you kidding me? I'm eating jello. He's wiping his hands. But on a routine reconnaissance mission. Could be a good opportunity to test our shiny new digital camera. He saw something. No one was supposed to see. Eliminate the problem. Arrogant early 30s Navy pilot <laughs> mm-hmm. is like fed up with this sort of based on a true story, uh, Bosnia peacekeeping sort of right. Clinton era, you know, diplomatic mission. Yeah. It sort of begins as a workplace comedy. I agree. And then they decide very sort of sitcom-y like, like let's go out of the safe zone and like see what <laughs> happens and where, but like it, it's not like a sitcom outcome, sitcom outcome. There we go. Where, you know, two anti airplane missiles get shot at them and they end up like getting shot down uh, behind enemy lines <laughs> and they have to survive while they figure out how to get him and like the like the kink in the uh, the works here is that because it's like a diplomatic mission and there's no like formal war that's been declared with anyone, like they can't just like cross the the demilitarized zone and get him, right? Because that would cause like that would be an act of war. Even though it's very clear to us that uh, like the Bosnian Serbs have violated the demilitarized zone and are like massacring the Bosnian Muslims. Yeah. There's a particularly graphic scene in this movie where Owen Wilson hides from uh, the Serbs in just a pit of the dead. Yeah. It's... Like he's just in this tro- this muddy trough with just like carcasses of like humans that they, they have this weird like flashback scene to who were like slaughtered days earlier and like everyone had forgotten and it makes it so weird when they're all like, oh yeah, this is the ditch where we shot 300 people. Yeah. <laughs> it is super weird that they don't remember. <laughs> right. And oh like, my this, God. I would always remember like that place over there is the place where I murdered 300 people yep. if that had been part of my life. That's a good point. But so going back to my issue with it, though, yeah, once it switches over from like goofy workplace comedy to action movie, Owen Wilson can only like look to the bottom left of the screen and shout, God damn it, like so many times before it's like. What are you what are you doing? He really Because it doesn't seem like Owen Wilson is not someone who 
like, can pretend he's had any military training. Would it be better if it was anyone else, though? Think about how many, how much time, how many times the movie asks him to do that. There's very little for that character to do. But I think run. if you put, if you put like a, like a sort of a snarky, maybe like let Keanu like off the leash a little bit kind of role. <laughs> This movie is, like, unbelievably good. Uh, that's probably true. <laughs> so, can I... Will you open the email I've sent you? Yeah. Because the special treat I have is that my friend Ryan, who I watched this movie with when we were 12, does an Owen Wilson impression solely based on this obscure movie, <laughs> which I have recorded and sent to you. Nine seconds. Here we go. Everybody thinks they're going to get a chance to punch some Nazi in the face at Normandy, and that's just not going to happen. Those days are long gone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And I texted him. I was like, do you remember that line? He's like, yeah, let me try to do it cold right now. And that's what he came up with. That's funny. And it also sort of, like, pokes at the, you know, the, the sort of voice of this film, if you will. Yeah. That... I feel like this movie, if this movie like was at a party, the conversation it would be having with the people around it would be like, wasn't war a lot of fun? <laughs> like I miss like a good war, like a, like a, not like a, like a military conflict, but like a straight up like war war. <laughs> like we need to get back to war. <laughs> like this movie just like loves, like the villain of this film is the bureaucrat trying to keep them from going to war. Yeah. That's true. Like over this one arrogant guy who like probably deserves the fate he got. There's something about that attitude that I find really funny, especially when it's like rendered in the way that this movie is with 10 million like tiny Michael Bayisms. It's yes. like the free the the number of freezes of action that then are like zip into fast motion. This movie has this obsession with uh, like showing process in hyperlapse. Like when they right. push the ejector button, it shows you like every little wire that needs to fire to shoot them out. And it's it's something about it just kind of tickles me. I just I laughed aloud during the scene where in like the slowest motion they can do they show you the concussion of a landmine just blowing like the skin off this guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> but being like an inept Michael Bay is a ridiculous place to be, John Moore. Yeah. Well that's what I think is funny about this movie is they're like the setup for it is like, so Owen Wilson's going to be like stuck and there's going to be nothing there and he has like nothing to fight back with and it's going to be the most dangerous game. Yeah. You know, type of thing where this guy's hunting him. And then they like shot 15 minutes of that and they're like, okay, now we need like another hour and 15 minutes of movie. <laughs> and they're like, okay, uh, what if actually instead of being in the wilderness, they're like suddenly in a town? Yeah. Like, perfect. We have something to build. We can, you know, move this production along. Like, it just seems like it It changes. It, it's like the edge for a second. Mm-hmm. Like him sort of in nature and you're like wondering how he's going to... 127 hours his way out of it but then like it just becomes a like a you're like what do they have left from saving private ryan is there anything on the lot do we have like a small european town eastern european that we can blow up a little bit and then turn the saturation all the way down right until everything is gray 
how much time can we add if we just do most of the action sequences in slow motion? <laughs> it's really, Ryan wisely pointed out too, that it's like a real like 90s hangover action movie. Where like, right. this is essentially a 90s movie, but you know it's 2001 because like, it's like doing like Dominic Cena stuff from Gone in 60 Seconds, where the movie oh, just sure. kind of like looks sickly and there's strange like speed ups and slowdowns and like there's just like, you know, acid metal is the soundtrack. I don't like how you're using a reference to one of the better movies I think that we've talked about on this podcast. Gone in 60 uh, Seconds to make... is bad. No. Despite the fact seconds. that we used it for our new segment. <laughs> anyway, no, I get what you're saying though. It has this sort of early 2000s like what are action movies right now kind yes. of yes and sometimes it switches to like blair witch cam on his face oh i didn't love that it's just like throwing all these crazy new visual techniques at the same time it's pretty bad at using visuals to tell a story <laughs> but that's kind of what i like about this movie when i say i'm tickled by it it's just like it's so like blatantly unreal Right. That I enjoy, that it can like fuck up and it can like, it's sort of like outlook on the morality of war can be screwed up and you're just like, it. this movie is nonsense. Like you right. can forgive it for so many things because it's not, it's not a serious movie. It casts Owen Wilson to like be charming, but like the thing about Owen Wilson is he's only charming like against someone else. Yeah. And he can't just be like charming in a vacuum. He's good when he gets in the back of that truck with that. Kid. Yes, because there's people. Yeah. <laughs> when you give him some lines, he can do it. Yeah. But I don't think he can do it like um, I'm telling you, Keanu Man, and this would have been like that would have been nuts and great. Would have been this is a good the point. John Wick Renaissance would have come that much earlier. Sure, sure. This for me is a bad good. <sighs> it's gonna be a bad bad for hey. me. Hey. Gonna be a bad, bad for me. I think this um, movie's better than Gone in sixty seconds. No, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'd watch if somebody right now was like, "Is Gone in, like, do you want to watch Gone in sixty seconds?" I would say yes. Uh, oh. If someone said, "What I in even in a year from now, if they asked me if I wanted to watch Behind Enemy Lines, I'd probably say no." Let's move on to Black Hawk Down, another movie about the murky life of '90s international american intervention going pretty bad it's the same time period yep clinton uh international politics in play yeah that globalism that like we should intervene to stop tragedy but like we don't really know how to do that and we don't have a lot of people helping (laughs) so this movie to again 2001 both of these movies are released in the winter after 9-11 which is interesting they were made before 9-11 yes they were but the the quite serious box office response to them, and particularly the reputation of Black Hawk Down, which I just remember, if you had seen Black Hawk Down when you were an 11 year old uh, in my school, it was like, it was like cooler than owning a leather jacket. You know, it was just like you were allowed to see rated R movies. You yelled about how crazy RPGs were, and that wasn't me. I never I watched it for the first time last night. You never seen. I had Black Hawk Down? never seen Black Hawk Down. Oh, man. I definitely own Black Hawk Down in my childhood home uh, on DVD. Was it a pretty, like, quintessential movie of people in your age group? I think we were... So how old were you when it came out? 11? 11. And I was 13. 
13, 14 was like really when I was sneaking into movies. So I definitely saw this in the theaters, like after buying uh, like a ticket to something rated PG. So yeah, you didn't uh, watch an entire generation of actors come of age and <laughs> <laughs> in one, one movie. Should we start there? Because well, what's it's amazing, absurd. watching this movie again, I mean, it sort of has that Saving Private Ryan thing to it where let's just get as many recognizable actors as we can. Well, it was also sort of prescient in, like, who was cast, because I think this made a lot of people. Yeah, um, maybe. Orlando Bloom especially seems like right before he breaks out. This is one of Tom Hardy's first roles. Yeah, Hardy has doesn't really do much for the next, like, seven or eight years, though. But yes, you're right. Um, weird seeing him in there. But who's your anyway, favorite weird cast member? I think it has to be Ty Burrell. <laughs> Me too. The dad from Modern Family, for those the who don't know. The dad from Modern Family as, like, the medic. Yeah. Or um, one of the medics. Like That's the thing. It's Orlando Bloom, it's Eric Bana, it's Josh Hartnett. We're still very firmly in the, like, Josh Hartnett's going to be a big thing. And it's like, oh, no, Hollywood Homicide, no! Yeah. Um, oh, 30 Days of Night, whoa! <laughs> I actually um, kind of like 30 Days of Night. And Tom Sizemore and Jason Isaacs and Hugh Piven. Dancy. And it's Owen oh, Piven, yep. Um, Sam, uh, like Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Sam Shepard as the general. It is a hilarious amount of very young English actors thinking they can sound American by doing a Southern accent and still doing a pretty bad job. I was going to make that point that like the, especially for Tom Hardy is like, what you mean? (laughs) (laughs) What you mean? We can't get to the landing strip. You know how bad I, Orlando Bloom is so bad at the American accent. The first thing he's asked in the movie by Eric Ben is what's your name? And he goes, Private Blackburn, and (laughs) (laughs) you can't say the name of the character without using his normal voice. It's so funny. Um, But it's just, do you you stop and think about, like, who wasn't in this movie and, like, what did they fuck up? What did, like, Mackay Pfeiffer and uh, Gio Gio Ribisi and, like, uh, Michael Bean, what did they do not to be included in this movie? Yeah, why isn't Bruce McGill in some sort of like some like like reconnaissance role on this? So this is a, a movie about uh, U.S. intervention in Somalia in what 1993. Yeah. Um, the, the main warlord I don't remember his name is essentially starving the people of Somalia by hoarding the like the UN food aid that's coming to them. Um, and so the movie start the movie starts in this very moral way, right? Where Hartnett's in a helicopter flying over and they just see the warlord's men like opening fire on the starving masses and he's like permission to engage. They're shooting civilians and they're like, "Now, nah, just come back to base." Um <laughs> and it's just like, "Oh wow, so we are really going to get some like moral ground to stand on here." But the movie never really gets back to that as the army rangers uh, no, they're they, pretty uh, much freely killing everyone by the end of the film. Right. Is that what they are? Are they army rangers and some Navy SEALs? I don't know. They're special specialists. Yeah, there's they're a lot of loose cannons. They figure out where the warlords are going to meet in the city or where they think they're going to meet, and they're just like, you know what? We'll just head on into Mogadishu with you know six helicopters and some Humvees and, like America, handle this. 
And that yeah. does not work out. You shouldn't have come here. This is our war. Not yours. 300,000 dead and counting. That's not a war, Mr. Ito. It's genocide. These people, they have no food. We can either help or we can sit back and watch a country destroy itself on CNN. It like is sort of judgmental of the American like of the people that they're following at first, just like the hubris of going into this situation. Like, so like it focuses specifically on them, like not bringing things they would need if this like goes on for more than 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm not going to be shot in the back. What do I need? I don't need to bring water for any reason. Oh my God. We're going to be back in 30 minutes. You won't need water. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yes, that's a good point. That's the thing for me. This movie I'm so confused about like what it is trying to tell me about this military failure. And I'm confused right up until the point that I'm just suspicious. It's sort of like one of these uh, collection of short stories movies. It doesn't really have a protagonist. It just sort of has timelines and where Nolan's impulse is to play with like timing of how like things lead to like up to like one pinnacle moment. This is sort of like, here's what seven timelines that are sort of like around when these helicopters like fall out of the sky. Yeah. I don't know. I think sort of fun in like a, the way that like a season of Fargo is kind of fun. Like just seeing how many people they can stuff into these sort of allegorical moments and these like little sort of, because this is what these movies have. They have these timelines that sort of bump into each other as you figure out, like, are these guys going to get out of there? Like, that's that's all three of these films. And this one does it through just throwing so many characters, like, at it. Too many, I think. I think there's a big difference between the maybe seven faces of Dunkirk I'm supposed to stay with and the 30 that I cannot possibly keep track of in this movie. For being sure. a short story, one of those quote-unquote short story movies, buddy, these short stories aren't very different. They're not very distinct. Sure. Yeah, that's a... But but that's the thing. The movie's not a... It's not... doesn't feel like it's really about... It's about the whole, how the whole sort of... If this were a season of television, sure, you could flesh all these people out, but this is just sort of about this specific battle that's the like if you look at these movies the fundamental challenge about them is how are you going to tell the story of when the tide turned of this specific thing happening the specific historical moment like your obligation as a filmmaker is to tell the story of the tides turning and the momentum shifting in a way that the good guys get it in the end I think that this style of like docu-realist, how well can I show, I think there was this mandate or this impulse among filmmakers in the early 2000s, maybe post Saving Private Ryan around like the Band of Brothers era, Peter Berg just starting to make movies where it's like, you know, this isn't fun, you guys. You're about to go to the theater and you're about to see just how bad this is and just how brave these boys are. And I think that must have felt sort of novel. It was I went back and read a review of this and it was like, this is a movie that flips the conventions of a war movie on its head. And I was just like, 
that just seems like a completely foreign concept to me. That everything about this movie is the conventions of a war movie. What is it flipping? Well, you have to is think it about John what it Wayne? preceded. Is it flipping executive decision? Is it is it just take is it just being like this is fucking real, you guys, and that like really appealed to people in two thousand one? I think it's flipping the notion that like here's a group of Americans like fighting a noble fight. Like this is not like a noble fight. This is like a a thing that's like sort of politically like ooh, even so much so that Eric Bana has that line of just like when bullets are coming at your head, politics goes out the window. Yeah. You know, and that's it's the movie's sort of like take on this idea. Yeah, I know, I know, I know what you're saying. But to me, it feels like a strain of filmmaking, and which I think Ridley Scott does incredibly well. Like this is this is incredible action. I mean, and Greengrass will do this, and Peter Berg will do this, and it feels like the start of something that now, to me, I find rather macho and boring. See, I like the idea that they're sort of anti-heroes. And I think that's what I like about this and not about Behind Enemy Lines. Like, Behind Enemy Lines is so naive as to think that, you know, we would root for this, like, very, like, Midwestern white guy, like, in this foreign land where maybe he doesn't belong, you know, counteracted with Behind Enemy, or with uh, Black Hawk Down, where it's, it, it allows for complexity of, like, should these guys be there? Like, or, or what, because they end up just kidnapping students, right? Yeah. That aren't related to what happens, and most of them die. And a bunch of Americans die, and a thousand Somalis died. Don't you think this movie finds it pretty badass, what these, what in these guys are able to do in Alamo-style combat? I get very wary of, like, this Captain Phillips-esque, like, uh, yes, yes, war is, like, harsh and cruel, but isn't America still pretty good at it? I think it probably realistically portrays, like, how prepared we are for certain, like, military situations. Probably. But at the same time, I don't think he posits that, like, we're, like, we're good at war, but war is still bad. That's true. Like, I just thought it was sort of interesting, the level of communication that, like, has like had to go on and like miscommunication like in this situation like and the layers of this movie are kind of fun like every time the general has like one of his bright ideas like well he a he can't see what's happening like keeping that in mind that he has to just see from this helicopter guy that's like so far up he has no real idea what he's seeing and like the banter from the ground and i think the way that like what this movie says about the way humans communicate in a crisis situation, just the way like Nolan does in that scene where they're like all on the boat together. Like once you throw these guys into the shit, like things break down and like, that's funny to watch. And then you have like sort of the heartbreaking, you know, the way you have the Dunkirk kid tell uh, Killian Murphy that like the kid's not dead. You have that nice moment in this one too, where um, Josh Hartnett like lies to the guy that they like clamped his, his artery with respect to everything you're saying i just think that like if you're gonna do a movie like this really well you have to do it saving private ryan or platoon style where you get me close with seven or eight people who all have their different connection to each other and to the war and make me feel it not with 30 people who are all kind of the same who most of them just kind of want to kick ass and yes they do it and some of them make it and some of them don't I feel like your read on this movie is 
based on the fact that you had no context for seeing it. Like you're seeing this movie after it was already influential and you're seeing it's like the things that came after it as if they inspired it. So of course it's not like the best war movie from 2017, but like for its time, I think is, I think it holds up. I think it holds up technically. I mean, I think it looks great. I still yeah. just don't think that I don't think this movie was would have been considered well written in 2001 and I just frankly I think it comes on this wave of like you know why so many people were probably so fucking excited to see this movie in December 2001 don't you think we needed a little uh you know American troops go kick some ass kind of movie there's something like there's no moment of humanity really other than seeing that mother trying to protect her like several children that you ever see these like desperate people that were trying to like quote unquote help as humans this is a, yes i'm glad you brought this up because this is you're you're coming to my aid here <laughs> because i think like any you know vietnam and afterward war movie has that thing of like oh god were these people really the enemy like who are these people but the movie never like makes you wonder about that the movie is just as confused and they show you people experiencing horrifying emotions I, I just didn't understand the movie starts out on such a moral note of like, yes, we should be there. But then it's just like, who's there? What are the sides? I get how that's an atmospherically appropriate thing. But like, where is it in the script? Who are these people? And why are you making them look so scary? Well, I think what's happening is they, I mean, they go behind enemy lines and they go into this territory that's like controlled by their enemy, but there are also just like civilians living in that area too. It's like a bad neighborhood or something. Sure. So what happens is this war zone breaks out, but like around other people's lives. Right. But like you, I wanted to see some of those lives. Totally. Like I think you needed to humanize them in some way, but every, literally every character we see who is Somali in this movie either fucks over no just fucks over the americans you know like we see like a boy like watching the military base and it's like oh the boy like he's exposed to this war and then he like picks up the phone and he like calls like the big bad and it's just like the whites are coming yeah and that's you know and then like the the warlord being like you think democracy will just work here that's what you think that's such a cheap scene that's such a cheap like bad guy yeah. sort of points out American arrogance, but they're not there to, inst- what are they, what are they there to do? Like, is that what they're there to do? Right. I don't think so. I think that's just the movie being like, and now we'll point out that sometimes the American but agenda like, is isn't flawed. This movie, like ultimately, if you just boil it down, like you were saying earlier, they cast a lot of like white British actors who like all kind of look the same when they're like a little bit dirty. Yeah. And it's, it's, them versus like a lot of like starving black people that they can't trust. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very weird, like black versus white uniform movie. So for me, this is a this is a good bad. Like I recognize the the undertaking, the sheer assemblage of talent, the uh, amount of artificial AK forty seven magazines that must have needed to be used. Um, and I can also sort of see where, yes, that I, I admit that the docu-realist style of like sometimes with video game flourishes must have felt very visually novel in 2001. Uh, but I didn't enjoy it. It felt like a tactical, violent, violent tactical exercise to me. So good, bad. 
I might have to go the opposite. I might have to say it's bad good. Okay. Because, like, I think that you're right. Like, its characters are, are not very well drawn. Um, technically, it's, like, a, a masterpiece. But, like, as a story, like, I don't, like, know what it's saying. And, like, as we peel at it a little bit more, like, there's also, like, something vaguely <laughs> racist about, like, maybe what it was attempting to do. Like I said, confused up to the point of suspicious. Right. But, like, I have fun watching it. Like, it's a pretty exciting film. So I'm going to have to give it a... I'll give it a bad good. The, the length didn't bother you? Um, Ridley hitting the no, old 225? I was, pretty, I, was, I was pretty engaged throughout. All right. All right. Oh, well, my friend. Sir. Mission uh, accomplished? Shall we hang the banner? Or what do you think? We, we save these Ryans, privates. What now? What happened? Um. I think we made it off the beaches of Dunkirk. Sure. Did we jump into the helicopter off the side of the Bosnian hill? Did we get greeted by the Pakistani uh, people with, like, the tea? We did fine. Well, folks, thanks for being with us. Thanks to Joe Kozel for guesting. Thank you to my friend Ryan for sending his 15-year-old Owen Wilson impression uh, via text. And thank you, buddy, as always. It's been a pleasure. It's always here, good to uh, hear voice chants. Let's, uh, let's keep doing this. Let's keep it up. I agree. And you, where you can find us keeping it up is BeRealPodcast.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you find your podcasts. We ought to be there. More sum- There's more summer movies to come and uh, assuredly more great guests. I salute you. We'll see you next time. If it's the beaches, if it's the beaches, sands you want, then you.